Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Episode 70. I can't believe we've done 70 of these things now. I know. (laughs) Extraordinary, isn't it? Time does fly. Um, So often with this podcast, we will pick a handful of topical subjects and talk about those. I think you sort of have to do that when you record a podcast every week. But just as often, we like to pick one topic and go deep on that one topic for 40 minutes or something. This week, we've chosen Bentley. Um, Now, I was thinking a lot about Bentley yesterday evening um, and what that brand, that mark, means to me. Um, And I realised that actually it doesn't resonate with me anything like Aston Martin does because I prefer more inherently sporting cars, which Aston Martins tend to be. I also think there have been more beautiful Aston Martins. Uh, what do you reckon? Yeah, I don't disagree with any of it. Um, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I would put the case for Bentley... I don't know whether... I think Bentley does resonate more. I mean, I have a particular connection to Bentley because my father was obsessed with them. Um, so I'm probably not an objective observer. But I think what you're right that they have not they're not as sporting as Aston Martins they have historically not been as beautiful or a lot of them have not been as beautiful as Aston Martins but what I do love about them is they have a a strength an engineering integrity to them um and really I think it's one of the things I most admire about the company today is that they still even today appear to be going beyond what's strictly required to get the job done and I just love that because that was absolutely the ethos uh well we're going to talk about WN in a minute I think uh, you know that's been the way the company has been since the start um and even when it was taken over by Rolls-Royce you know Rolls-Royce was another company which had this um this reputation um for engineering excellence and and, and I just love that I just love cars that you get into them and you just feel that they have been put together by people to whom their craft really matters 
it's not just people doing a god people are sending you know washing machines and refrigerators um that these cars and 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 it's a different kind of passion it's not as it's not as easily identified as 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 that which you can find in a car because of the way that it looks or the way that it it, it gets down a road um but to me it's still really really important um and i think that so long as bentleys have that um they'll always find people who 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 buy into that i certainly do um, okay, well, Bentley is a good topic to choose for this podcast because I could do all the research I like and I'll still never unearth more background, more anecdotes, more interesting facts than you will just have stored up in your head. Um, so, so why is it that you uh, know so much about Bentley? That why, does it, why does the mark sort of mean something to you? You mentioned your father. Yeah, I mean, he was just obsessed with them. I mean, he was absolutely, completely, utterly, and, and not uh, not modern Bentleys, old Bentleys, pre-war Bentleys. Um, he just, I mean, I'm not sure why it was that he just settled on those things. I think he just admired, uh, they were so usable. I mean, he, he had one, um, which my brother still has to this day. And he did, I mean, he did insane things. For, I mean, he he did the Millimilia in it. He drove it across America. He drove it around South Africa. He just... Uh, and he just loved the fact that you could get in these cars, which were, you know, even then, whatever, 60, 70 years old, press a button, and you'd have all the sense of occasion and all the magnificence and all the feels and the smell of a car that was from that era. And yet, you could just use it and abuse it, and and they'd just never let you down. And, and I think he was... I've always had this thing about uh, a car is only as much fun uh, as it will allow you to have, depending on how often you, you you get to drive it, and it's the sort of car that you can just drive all the time. I've got a mate who's got one, um, and there there actually aren't many places he hasn't driven it. He drove it from Peking to Paris. He's driven it across America. He's driven it down through South America. I mean, he's just been um, and you know, and all these adventures. As far as I'm aware, the only problems he's had has been punctures, and this is a 1929 car. And that was so a, they were just that over-engineered. They were that tough. Yeah. And was the attitude to hell with the weight of it? Well, I mean, I, yes, because I don't think they appreciated the import. But also, you know, remember that he wasn't building... So if, if we're talking about, um, you know, the racing cars, he wasn't talking about Grand Prix cars then. You're talking about cars which, you know, had to survive a 24-hour race. That's what, you know, the Bentleys were, were most famous for doing. You know, there's also the fact that they didn't understand... Um, things like metallurgy and metal fatigue the way we do today and so the only way that you could be sure that something was going to last was to you know was to overdo it but um, but also W.O. Bentley was an engineer who was just obsessed with doing things to the highest possible quality Um, I mean there is there there is for instance you know one of his cars went off and did a 24 hours around Le Mans in the 1920s and the strip down report they took the engine to bits and they measured everything after 24 hours of racing and the strip down report reads in its entirety nothing to report <laughs> and they put it back together again and stuck it back in the car that's um, fantastic yeah so yeah. That, that's the that's what I really really buy into um, you know he he wasn't a, he wasn't an inventor um there wasn't anything that he'd done which had never been done before but he did take stuff which was at the time pretty innovative stuff 
uh, and just do it better than anybody else had ever done it. Um, and my father, I think, really bought into that and just growing up in that. I mean, he was a very, um, my father was a very characterful guy um, and it was very hard not to listen when he was banging on about this stuff. Um, and so I just, you know, while everybody else was, I don't know, listening to the charts, I would just, you know, as, as a kid, I'd just be reading stories of Bentleys at Lemoor and I became, you know, really pretty sad on the subject. Uh, and he aged eight. I could quote, I could tell you every driver who raced every Bentley at every Le Mans from ni- the first one in 1923 to when they stopped doing it in 1930. I probably still could. Well, we might quiz you on that later on. Um, but, <laughs> okay, well, we really have to start with Walter Owen Bentley. Um, now, I've been doing, doing some reading up and I'm just going to sort of recite some of it now. It, you leap in if anything's wrong, okay? Um, born in 1888... Um, he he raced motorcycles and cars as a young man, um, and he was uh, an engine uh, designer, aircraft and car engines. Um, and he, I read this yesterday, and it actually rang a bell. I did know it; I'd read it before, but I was still surprised to be reminded that he went to Clifton College uh, between 1902 and 1905, which is 800 meters behind me. It's there; I can almost see it, um, and. Yeah, I think he must be Clifton College's most famous alumni. I think that's cool. I don't know. Yeah, um, it's very cool. Yeah, and so he clearly born into a prosperous family. Um, and he, he founded this company called Bentley in London, Bentley Motors Limited in London in 1919. Yeah. Yeah, and so we've spoken a bit about him and his background and what his sort of engineering philosophy was. Yeah, I mean, um, just, 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 before, well, just before we actually get onto the company, I mean, his... His World War One um, record. I mean, what he did was, you know, World War One was a pretty perilous time to be flying aircraft, as you can. Not just because, you know, um, you were being shot at, but also because you know the, these aircraft were more than capable of killing you all by themselves, um, and they had very, very unreliable engines. Um, and WO decided that that was intolerable. And that far too many lives were being lost that way. And so he designed two engines. Um, one was called the BR1, BR for Bentley Rotary. Um, and they really made, the other was a BR2, and that came in right at the end of the war, not really enough time to make a huge difference. But they really, really, I mean, they went into sort of things like Sopwith Camels and, you know, all these things that we've heard of. Um, and pilots stopped dying because their engines kept working. Um, and I think that that part of his life is probably um, not appreciated um, in the way that it should be, because frankly, it was clearly far more important than anything he ever went on to to do in the automotive sphere. So I just thought I would uh, I would just get that in. Um, and then, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, he came out of the war. Um, his wife died, um, a Spanish flu, um, but he kept on and he founded his own company in 1919, in New Street Mews in London um, and there's this lovely story about the first ever engine first ever Bentley engine sitting on a bench in New Street Mews and they fired it up um, and it had no exhaust on it so I mean you can imagine the racket um, and a nurse at a nursing home next door came running and absolutely livid and told them that she was looking after a man who was dying um, and they turned around and they said to him well it sounds to die to go they ain't going to get any better than that <laughs> Um, and that's certainly the story. And uh, yeah, and, and, and then Bentley Motors began. It was a stroke of fortune, actually, thinking about it now, that he founded this company in 1919 with a certain set of ideals. 
and then literally a few years later started this race in the north of France called the Grand Prix of Endurance that gave his company the perfect platform to demonstrate speed and durability, the things that Bentley stood for. Yeah, but he thought Le Mans, he thought Le Mans was a ridiculous idea. Oh, did he? <laughs> yes. He said, it's a crazy race. Cars aren't designed to race for 24 hours. Nobody will finish. So the first, so the first ever Le Mans was in 1923, um, and the only foreign entrant was one Bentley. But it wasn't Bentley's Bentley. Uh, it was a bloke called John Duff um, decided he was going to go and do this completely bonkers race. And W.O. was just said, well, this is just ridiculous. It, but, you know, there's, there's just no point. Um, it'll, you know, it, it'll never make it. Uh, but Duff said, well, I'm going anyway. And at the last minute, W.O., more out of kind of curiosity, and I think a bit of a sense of guilt, um, got on the boat and toddled over and said he'd man the pit for as long as this car lasted. <laughs> um, and the car not only lasted, it would have won the race had the roads were in such a terrible condition. And basically, they were almost racing on gravel. Um, and they hadn't bothered to protect the fuel tank. Um, and a stone went through the tank. And the car got stranded out on the circuit. Um, and so, I think Duff was driving it. And he ran to the pits. Um, and then Frank Clements, his t- teammate, get this, got on a bicycle. Cycled up the track the wrong way with the cars coming the other way. Can you imagine that today? Someone getting on a bicycle and driving around Le Mans the wrong way while the race is going on. Um, repaired the tank with some chewing gum, um, had some fuel from somewhere, got it in the car, got the car going, got back to the pits where they repaired it properly. Um, they then broke the lap record, and I think they came fifth in the end. Um, but I don't think there's any question. They'd have, if that hadn't happened, they'd have won the race. At which they, and from that moment on, W was just completely you know, obsessed with the place and just thought, wow, this is incredible. It um, does seem to be the case, doesn't it? He must have loved it from that first year, having been sceptical, because in 1924... Bentley went and won it. Yeah, but even that wasn't Bentley's Bentley. That was, but that was a, that was basically that was like an M Sport operation. That was, you know, that was a private car, but it was completely it was it was totally prepared by Bentley and run by Bentley and everything else. And then after that, it were, they were proper works entries. Yeah, and then we're into the proper Bentley boys era, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. The, um, the but late they won 20s. It in 24, yeah. Um, and didn't in 25 and 26, and then won it every year from 27 to 30. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And okay, so let's talk about some of the characters then, the Bentley yeah. boys. Um, who stands out? Someone like Tim Birkin. Birkin, I mean, Birkin was uh, an amazing bloke, very small in stature. Um, that's why they called it, his actual name was Henry, but he was Sir Henry Birkin. But they called him Tim out of Tiny Tim because he was a he was a little bloke, but he was he was brave as like you have to remember these guys that very few of them expected to be alive. They'd all just come out of the First World War. Um, Lots of them had been, one of the guys, look, a chap called Bernard Rubin, who won the more um, in 1928. Uh, I think he'd spent two years in hospital. Um, the injuries he'd received on the Western Front being so bad. Um, and, you know, they'd all had pretty terrible wartime experiences. Um, and they were all looking, A, for them, every day was a bonus because they didn't expect to be alive. And B, they were looking for a way of just putting some meaning into their lives and and, and and having some excitement and you know racing cars around places like the Morse 24 hours was very much the place to do it uh, so yeah so Birkin he was he was the bravest um, of the Bentley drivers he was the quickest of the Bentley drivers um, I wouldn't say he was the best 
um, because far too often, even the way that WO built cars, um, Birkin found, found a way of breaking them. Um, he would just thrash them and thrash them and thrash them. Uh, he was absolutely merciless. Um, but he did break the book Brooklyn's um, lap record in 1932, driving his famous single-seater red car at 139 miles an hour. Um, and, he, um, and he died the following year. Um, I mean, Bentley went bust in 1931, so he was already, you know, and, and also Birkin was the man who did the blowers. I don't know if we're going to talk about the blowers, but this was, you know, Birkin wanted to make a Bentley go faster. Um, and Bentley's very traditional purist way was, so you want to make it go faster and you need, therefore you need more power. What you do is you, might, you make a bigger engine. And Birkin said, well, we haven't got time to do that. And it's just one, you want to just bolt a supercharger on the thing. And WO hated it. He said, you, to supercharge a Bentley is to pervert its design and corrupt its performance. Hated it. Um, but Birkin had private money. He had the backing of Wolf Bonato, who by then was the chairman of Bentley. Um, and so these cars were created. And the legend of the blower um, was, uh, was started. Um, and Birkin was absolutely the, um, the person who was behind that. Um, and, you know, we all love blowers today. And Bentley themselves, they've just gone and created another 12 of their own number two team cars. The inconvenient truth is that a blower never won a race. You know, Bentley's won loads and loads and loads of races. None of them was won by a blur because almost always they just broke because they were doing something to a Bentley, which a Bentley was not designed to do. Um, so, and, and that was all Birkin. And then tragically, he, um, because there weren't Bentleys to race anymore, because Bentleys had stopped and gone bankrupt and so on. Um, he, well, he won the more in 1931 in an Alfa Romeo with Earl Howe, which is great. His second um, win in the race um, and then 1933 um, he burnt his arm on the exhaust pipe of his Maserati uh, in the Tripoli Grand Prix um, got septicemia and because back then you know there weren't you know antibiotics or anything else like that um, tragically he, he died at a very very young age um, but yeah bit of a dude wow what a life story um, it, it, what about Wolf Bonato do we need to set aside a bit of time for him he seemed like a bit of a character himself yeah well he was a diamond millionaire his father barney bonato was one of the richest men in the world um and so wolf bonato his his lamore record is is i i don't believe that anybody will ever i mean tom christensen fair play won lamore nine times amazing but he had a few attempts wolf bonato only won lamore three times but then he only did lamore three times <laughs> played three that is three. exceptional not bad, is it? 28, 29, 30. Crikey. Yeah. He won every Le Mans he ever entered. Um, and WO always said that Bonato was the best driver that they had. Um, they were all, actually, they were all amateurs apart from one. There was Frank Clement who drove in every Le Mans Bentley did from 1923 to 1930. He was, he was um, a professional racing driver um, and he was really, really good. Um, but he was just solid and dependable. Whereas Bonato was fast and utterly dependable as well. Um, but he was, I mean, he was a remarkable man. He was, I, I often forget the, the list of things that he did is so long. I, 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 he was, he was a powerboat racer. He was a boxer. Um, he had racehorses. He kept wicket for Surrey. He was obviously an incredible racing driver. And it, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, he was just a, um, a consummate overachiever, um, an amazing man. Um, and, 
The sad thing about Bentley Motors and, and, and W.O. story is however good an engineer W.O. was, he was as bad a businessman. Um, and it's not at all sure. I think that there was one year, 1929, in the history of Bentley Motors where they made a profit. Uh, I think they ran the business at a loss every single year. And by 1925, it was absolutely on its knees um, and it was going to the wall. And that's when Bernardo came in. Um, and basically, W.O. had to give up control of his company. And by the end of the era in 1930, I mean, W.O. was pretty much sidelined. He was doing some of the engineering, but the last ever vintage Bentley, the Forley, who didn't even have a Bentley engine in it. They, because the crash had come 1931, um, and they had this massive, wonderful eight litre Bentleys, which nobody wanted. And they just thought, shit, we've got to get something which is uh, affordable and doesn't use ridiculous amounts of fuel in it. And so they literally went to Ricardo, the same Ricardo who builds McLaren engines for them to this day, um, and just said, we need an engine. And Ricardo had a four-cylinder, uh, sorry, a six-cylinder four-litre engine, um, which was, you know, a decent enough engine, actually. But they put it in this enormous eight-litre chassis, so it couldn't get out of its way. It was so, it was so slow, and it actually hastened the end. But, you know, at the end, by then, you know, W was a completely marginalized figure um glenn kidston we just need to talk about him briefly um <laughs> come on i mean he was i mean he was just another one of these characters he what did he do he got he got he was shipwrecked he was in a submarine that sank and survived that he was shipwrecked again he was in an aircraft he was the only survivor of an aircraft that crashed and he survived because he literally beat his way out of the side of the aeroplane um you know, of the flaming wreck. And he was the only person to get out of that. Um, he won Le Mans with Bonato in 1930 uh, and then died, I think, I think the following year because he'd just broken the record from flying from London to Cape Town. Um, and I think he was in a tiger moth. And he was just flying around South Africa somewhere and something happened. Um, the engine stopped and that was the end of him. Um, so bloody hell the, yeah. the story of Bentley the early story of Bentley is full of remarkable characters isn't it oh yeah, yeah, yeah often yeah. meeting very unfortunate ends That's... yeah yeah they had George Duller he was a championship jockey they, I mean just all sorts of it. Sammy Davis who was the technical editor of Autocar um, yeah amazing cast of characters all with this devil make a attitude to life um, and you can see why to a sort of you know eight year old me um I just found these people incredible. I just found these people. These guys were my absolute idols um, because the, the lives they led were so exciting and so exotic. Um, and frankly, so different to the, the, the one I thought I was going to have. So, um, yeah, amazing people. I mean, and, and it's, I, I think that's why that era is so alive for Bentley. I think it's as much about the people who were doing it as the cars they were doing it in, to be honest. It really is comic book stuff. Sort it of is, boys yeah, own absolutely. Adventures, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally understand why that caught your imagination as a kid. Um, okay, well, those, that's the very early years of Bentley. Um, and we'll move on to the sort of later periods shortly. But I just need to do our now customary app update. Um, so as ever, you know, we, we try to publish a real variety of stuff on the app, stuff that you just won't find in other car magazines, on other car websites. Um, for instance, we've got our in-house car engineer, David Tuig. Um, who's an enormously experienced engineer, um, and he's written his first, the first part of a two-parter called A Car Design Odyssey, explaining just why it takes three, four, five years 
to go from the original concept for a car, not, not even the concept, but the original idea for a car, to the start of production. Um, and he also sort of calls out a lot of these startups who claim that they got from point A to point B in 18 months or 24 months because it's just not possible, according to our in-house engineer, David Tuick. And the second part of that story will be up very soon. Um, so that's on there now. We've also had um, Andrew's been knocking about in a fuel cell car. Um, it sounds like you were quite taken by this thing, actually. As a form of transport, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, to me, the, the, this is increasingly the way I see the world: is that cars divide into transport and things you want to drive. Um, and I think it's going to be very, very difficult for a car to be both. Um, and uh, so there will be, you know, there will be the things that we knock about in for work, uh, and then there will be our recreational toys. But yeah, the fuel cell car. I mean, I was just very taken by Toyota Mirai. Toyota Mirai, that it has uh, a genuine, genuinely, it's not, this isn't claimed, it's actually claimed to have a range of over 400 miles, but it will genuinely do 350 miles between fills. And then when you fill it, it takes four minutes. Now, the problem is you've got to find somewhere to sell, sell hydrogen, um, which is not the matter of the moment. And I'm not saying that this will be the future. What I am suggesting is that it should, it should, even if it won't be, it should at least be part of the future. Because for people who do distances, I don't care that you don't get very much um, power out of... I mean, Mirai's got 180 horsepower. You know, Tesla, the same, the same money, all have 450 horsepower or whatever. It doesn't trouble me because, as I've said before on this podcast, uh, I don't find the way electric cars deliver their power to be particularly interesting or particularly appealing. Um, but I do like... Um, I like the range. I like the recharging. Uh, and also, there just seemed to be a certain sophistication in the way. It wasn't this sort of all or nothing, meat or two veg type of approach that you get with electric cars and the way that the power is dispensed. So, um, yeah, I liked it. And, and I know they're not as efficient as electric cars. And they say, oh, yeah, but, you know, think of all the losses. But if all the energy that you're losing through those inefficiencies is... Um, sustainably gained and it's made from renewables i'm not sure that's such a big big issue anymore anyway that's enough of me on on fuel cells but it was it was really really interesting mm, yeah it's an interesting sort of thoughtful piece um i've also written about my car yes i do own an alpine a110 thank you everyone for pointing that out who knew <laughs> and it's uh i won't say any more about that and uh there's also a piece by andrew um about the lotus esprit specifically Colin Chapman's last ever company car, a turbo, um, that you got to knock about in a little bit, a little while ago. Um, a, really a very special car, that one, actually, with a great story. It's a great story. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very special car. You read the story, you'll see what um, modifications Chapman had put on the car. But I think, you know, to me, it's a rather sort of poignant story because it came at a time in his life. Um, okay, he wasn't going to, he, he wouldn't have known that he, he wasn't going to live very much longer, but. You know, the road car business was in a terrible state. Um, his revolutionary, game-changing Lotus 88 Formula One car just being slung out. Um, and, you know, at the back of his mind, the whole DeLorean thing would have been brewing, um, which was, you know, clearly going to land him in a whole world of pain. I mean, his life must have been, his working life must have been intolerable. Um, and so, you know, setting against that background, to go and have a go in his last um, company car, it's still only done 11,000 miles. Um, 
And yeah, it was, uh, and, and also, uh, whereas like, you know, Lotus had just bought the car back, um, it having been away from the company for nearly 40 years. Um, and I was the first person to drive it um, after they sort of fired it up uh, and made sure the wheels were pointing in the right direction. They hadn't done anything to it. So I was literally driving, you know, everything about that car apart from the paint was original. So it really was, you know, it wasn't a trigger's broom. This was Colin Chapman's um, car. So it was, yeah, it was it was a special thing to do. But uh, they are going to go through it, um, make sure that everything is working absolutely properly. And then I'm going to go back and have a proper go in it. Oh, fantastic. Um, so all that is on the app right now. Just go and search the Intercooler on whichever app store you use. You'll find it there. Um, and you can start your free trial for a month. Um, we think you'll like it. Right, let's get back to Bentley. Um, now it's... Okay, we're moving into the Rolls-Royce era. And yeah. actually, it was a slightly cloak and dagger thing, wasn't it, that Rolls-Royce took control of Bentley? And um, nicked in it. The, in the early 30s. Okay, go on. Let's have the story. Well, Bentley was always going to be, um, I'm sure many people listening to this would have heard of Napier. I mean, Napier was a very proper company. They made aero engines. They'd made some cars. Um, they'd been out of the car business for a bit, but they wanted to get back into it. Um, and Bentley was just the perfect, you know, um, thing that they could just, you know, one step solution, take it and be back in. Um, and the deal was done. Everything was absolutely fine. Uh, and it just needed to be rubber stamped in a court. Um, and somebody stood up and went uh we've got a counter offer and it literally went to and i can't remember the name of the company that this bloke was from. i might have it i Go might on. have it mm, i don't think i do have it but it was something sort of vague wasn't it intentionally vague yes exactly it was you know i don't know northern chartered <laughs> tiddlyweeks or whatever um and so this bloke stood up and said uh well we'll give you more at which stage uh, Napier went, oh, well, we'll pay more. At which stage the judge literally said, I'm a judge, I'm not a bloody auctioneer. Um, <laughs> so put, you, put your final bids in an envelope and whoever's high gets the company. Um, and this mystery man bid much more than Napier did. Um, and it was actually, this, and, 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 so this, and so this strange company got Bentley and everybody knew that, that this, this blip was clearly representing someone but didn't know who. And it was actually W.O.'s wife was at a cocktail party where, let's get this right, she met someone who'd overheard a bloke called Arthur Sidgreaves, who worked for Rolls-Royce, saying that they'd just bought Bentley. So W.O. found out that his company had been sold to Rolls-Royce from his wife. Um, and that, that was that. So that was 1931. And... Uh, yeah, and, and really, the, the, the slightly sad thing about it was, was that Henry Royce, who was still alive at the time, didn't even really want Bentley. Um, the, the only reason he bought it was to stop anybody else getting it. He didn't want Bentley to be a rival. He didn't particularly want it himself. Um, he, did, he and W.O. didn't particularly get on. Uh, Royce was an old and dying man by then. I think he died in 1933. Um, and so it was all a bit... Um, bit fraught um wo went to work for the new company um and he did do a bit of development and he did like the first of the rolls bentleys um did admire it um but he spent most of his time sort of doing development driving and cruising around the place in these cars he wasn't really instrumental in the car's design at all so the the sort of shell company if you like that rolls royce uh invented in order to pinch 
Bentley was the British Central Equitable Trust. There you go. Which gives nothing away, does it? (laughs) Um, Okay, so now we're well into the Rolls-Royce era. Um, I have to say, I'm... They're so entwined for the next few decades, I sort of get a bit lost. But what's at the heart of it? Are they... Is there... Is it mostly badge engineering of a sort? Or yeah, are, no, it's, are there... there, there's nothing really to get lost in. I mean, Bentley... After, okay, so the, the silent sports cars, up until the war, the silent sports cars were completely different. Okay, they used um, developments of Rolls-Royce engines, but they were highly tuned, and the cars looked completely differently, and they were they, they were tuned to be very trial. And those, um, those pre-war Bentleys, Derby Bentleys, as they're called, um, are very, very underrated cars. Those who know, know. And um, particularly the very early cars, which are quite light... And the very late cars, which had um, overdrive gearboxes and um, better steering and so on, um, they're terrific things. But um, then after the war, um, with the odd exception, really the big exception being the R-Type Continental, uh, which was this incredible, the fastest four-seat um, car in the world in 1951. Um, but that was the exception to the world. You know, with the exception of that, Bentley, Bentleys essentially ceased to exist. They just became... You know, Rolls Royces with Bentley badges on them. Um, you know, by by the end, um, so Bentley got its identity back in the 1980s. So by the end of the 1970s, um, you know, they had. If you bought a Bentley T2, which was a Rolls Royce Silver Shadow, it had a different radiator grill, which actually meant it therefore, because of the shape of the top of the grill radiator, it had to have a different bonnet, and it had different wheel centres uh, and different badges. That was it. Even the handbook didn't say Bentley. If you, you know, look at the handbook and it said that it was a Rolls-Royce handbook. Uh, you open the bonnet on the engine, um, on the cam cover, it'd say uh, Rolls-Royce. So, um, yeah, it, Bentley ceased to exist. Bentley production by the end was 4%. So out of every 100 cars they made, 96 would be Rolls-Royces. Oh, wow. Mm. God, that is interesting. So it was... Almost dormant through that period. Yeah, well, um, I mean, it, it became worse and worse and worse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Bentley brand was steadily eroded over a period of, well, I suppose we start in, you know, when production started again after the war in 1946 um, up until the end of the 1970s. That's interesting. And so it, the, the sort of final third of uh, the last century, it was, we could call it the Vickers era. Um, how did things, things change for Bentley during between sort of 70 and 98 um, when Vickers owned the thing? Well, what happened was um, they had the, someone had the idea of trying to make something out of Bentley again. And they thought, well, what does Bentley represent? It represents power and speed. Well, what do we have? We have a silver spirit um, with this unbelievably lazy, they were, you know, they were so ashamed at how little power that six and three quarter liter engine had. They didn't even tell it. Literally, every time anybody asked, they would just say adequate. Uh, um, <laughs> it probably didn't have two hundred horsepower, six and three quarter liter V eight. Um, it was so lazy. It was so understressed. Um, and so someone stuck a turbocharger on it, um, and the Bentley Mulsanne turbo was created, and immediately it started getting people's attention and then they made the turbo r the r standing for road holding um, <laughs> because this was uh because the, I mean, the Bullsand turbo was basically it was just a silver spirit with a with the turbo engine in it but uh they did realize fairly shortly that actually um it wouldn't be a bad idea this thing went around corners too 
Um, and then suddenly, it, w- it was meteoric. Suddenly, Rolls-Royce was passe. Rolls-Royce was fuddy-duddy. Um, you could have the quality of a Rolls-Royce in a car that was actually pretty cool. Um, went like smoke. And, and, then, and from then on, and, and these things always do build on themselves because suddenly Bentley was making money, which meant there was some money to spend on Bentley. And they started doing these other cars, things like you know, the Continental R and the amazing Continental T. Um, and yeah, and, and, and it completely by the time Volkswagen stepped in in 1998, in, in those whatever it was, much less than 20 short years, the tables are totally turned. And Rolls-Royce production was almost exactly at the same proportion that Bentley production had been at the end of the 1970s. Um, when, you know, um, and by then there was, you know, the Arnage was out um, and it was problematic because Vickers didn't invest in the brands. I don't know whether they didn't have the money or they didn't have the expertise or they didn't have the interest um, and so although Bentley did dominate the Rawls-Bentley landscape by that stage, um, the cars they were putting out, I mean, sales were, you know, they were making a thousand cars a year. Um, and that's, you know, that's not a sustainable business, really. Uh, and the cars were trading too much on brute speed and sort of old world charm um, and not enough on actually being, you know, any good at what they did. So... Um, Vickers lost interest. Uh, the company was put up for sale. There was, you know, a horrible fight between Volkswagen and BMW, um, both of whom wanted it. Um, and in the end, Volkswagen got the company. Um, it got Bentley. It got everything. The only thing that BMW got didn't get Rolls Royce. It got the right to call a car a Rolls Royce. Because the name, the Rolls-Royce name, belongs not to BMW, but to Rolls-Royce PLC, the aero engine company. So in 1971, Rolls-Royce cars and Rolls-Royce aero engines had split up, um, which had needed to happen because the company was bankrupt because the development charges of the RB211, which is the big thing, big engine you see hanging off the wings of 747s. Um, and so they'd gone their separate way and thereever after the aero engine company had licensed the name for Rolls-Royce to use and to this day Rolls-Royce PLC gives Rolls-Royce in Goodwood permission to use its name on their cars so that's all BMW bought was the right to call a car Rolls-Royce didn't buy any product at all Um, and yeah and so Volkswagen got Bentley in 1998 um, and the modern era of the company began so we're into the, the VW era, and it's the era that I'm much more familiar with. Um, I remember, <clears throat> when was this? So it must have been 2001, 2002, seeing spy shots of this new coupe called the Continental T. How, uh, sorry, old, were, the, how old were the you Continental in 2000, GT. How old were you in 2001? Uh, 15. <laughs> Turned 15 that year. Why? <laughs> Why do you ask? <laughs> anyway. No, no, um, no, no, keep going. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I remember seeing this sort of, camo-clad coupe thing um, with four round headlights in the pages of Autocar magazine, thinking, wow, this is really cool. And it was the first time I'd sort of clocked onto a new Bentley and sort of been quite excited by it. Uh, The Continental GT came out in 2003, didn't it? Yeah. Just before we get on to that, can I ask you, because I'm really interested in your perspective, uh, as a sort of whatever you would have been, uh, 15-year-old lad... 
Bentley going back to Le Mans for the first time in whatever it was, 71 years. Did that even register with you? Was it important to you? Did you know about Bentley in the 1920s and all its stuff? Um, or was it just, you know, another headline in, a, in, in, in autosport? I, good question. I remember a very big magazine feature in um, a mag that didn't last very long. It was called Zero, a very beautiful mag that came along for a short while. Um, and I remember seeing the Speed 8 in there. I think they, um, they'd spent some time with a team at Le Mans one year. And so I read up about that. Um, but actually, I didn't know about the heritage, really. Didn't understand the significance of Bentley going back to Le Mans. But you're quite right. Before we move on to the modern Bentleys, we need to talk about the, that return to Le Mans. Yeah. Um, and you're very familiar with it, weren't you? You spent some time with the team during that period. I, spent all, I, I was there pretty much for the... I mean, I was writing a book about it all i've been commissioned to write a book about it so you know i went to a load of the tests um i was at le mans for you know a fortnight each year um i was the i was the idiot who would stand in the pits and you know when you know i can remember dindo capello in 2003 he did a quadruple stint in the night um in the speed eight uh, and he came in and, and, and his eyes were pointing in different directions. I mean, he was absolutely spent. And I had to go and interview him for the press release that was going to get put out. And it was just, it was a, it was a pretty, it's a pretty difficult job, actually, because none of these guys understandably wanted to, they just wanted to go and, you know, calm Collapse. down, get a massage, have a drink, get some sleep. The last thing they wanted was some twat with a microphone asking them, <laughs> oh, how was the stint for you? And, anyway, so, um, yeah, um, but it was great. Um, but yeah, those, those cars were, they were actually just Audi R8s, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. You, do, you know how to wind <laughs> you, me up, don't you? You? Get, you get very wound up when people say that, don't you? <laughs> well, only because it's not true. And, and, and you know, it's, it, 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 and because it, this, this, this myth has been somehow perpetuated. Um, I mean, yes, okay. It was designed, so the first, so they did basically did two speed days, one which raced in 2001, 2002, and then the one which, the one which won the race in 2003, which was a completely different car. The, but they were all designed by the bloke who designed the Audi R8, okay? And they had Audi engines in it, and they were done at a place called Race Technology Norfolk, which is where the Audi R8C, this other Audi, which Peter Ellery, the designer, had done, had been done. And so people just said, oh, well, you know, it's, uh, it's an R8 with a roof on it because the R8 was winning everything. It absolutely, categorically, absolutely, pantalutely was not an R8 with or without a roof. Um, they used to say, Bentley used to say, that the R8 has got more British content on it than the Bentley has German con- content in it. I don't know whether that's true or not. But anyway, so, um, yeah, they did this programme. It was a three-year program. Uh, the best year was 2001, the first year, because they're, they're absolutely... Because I, I was there, I, I know all this stuff. And because Richard Lloyd, the late, great Richard Lloyd, uh, who ran the team in the first two years, um, you know, he and I were quite close. And, you know, and he said to me, if we get one car home in the top 10, that'll be a real result. And in fact, they put a car on the podium. And that was the emotion, the emotion in the pits that day when the car went over the line and then when they brought the trophy back into the tent, you know, I can feel myself getting emotional just thinking about it now. Um, bloody hell, it was 20 years ago. Anyway, um, and I was there in 2003 when they won it. 
And in 2003, when they won it, everybody was really happy. Everyone was really proud. It was a job well done. But in 2001, when they had... But frankly, if they hadn't won it in 2003, because there wasn't a works Audi there that year, um, it would have been shocking. Um, they were far and away. 2001, you know, that was a largely wet race. They'd never run the car in the wet because they, they just hadn't had any wet weather um, during the, their entire fest. You know, Dunlop, which was coming back to endurance racing, you know, they had no data at all with which to create their wet tyre. I mean, it was such an impossible task. And to put a car on the podium, um, it was, and, and to witness what happened when it did it, uh, it was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my in, in all the years I've been doing this job. Far more remarkable than the winning it in 2003. Mm. Oh, wow. And the, the, those Speed 8s were gorgeous cars, weren't they? Yeah. They looked sensational. I may be um, driving one quite soon. Oh, my goodness me. Right, well, you're going to have to tell us about that then. Well, no, you're I'm a lucky even, sod, aren't you? <laughs> I am a lucky one. I, 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 well, no, do you know what? I'm not going to jinx it. I'm not going to jinx it because something will happen and, you know, they'll get someone... That, who actually you know has a right to be in a country if i drive it okay i'll come back on the podcast and tell you about it okay so i'm not saying another bloody word about it okay okay good all right well um we're sort of running over as it is but let's just do a couple of minutes then on um the the current lineup or the the more modern stuff yeah the continental gt was it had a broad appeal didn't it among a certain sort of buyer um and it sold relatively for bentley in big numbers and it most really Im- turned around most the company's fortunes. The most important Bentley in the history of the company, with the possible exception of the very first one. You know, Bentley, as I was saying, before the Continental GT was selling about a thousand cars a year. The Continental GT comes in in two thousand, well, two thousand and four, really. Um, by two thousand and seven, the year before the financial collapse with the Flying Spur, which was basically a four-door Continental GT, they were selling 10,000 cars a year. Mm. That's they, they, were, they were selling so many cars, they had to start building Flying Spurs in Dresden. The only, only Bentley is not built by Bentley, ever. Um, because they just couldn't keep up with the demand for the things. Um, you know, and if you think about, if you take something like, you know, an Arnage, the, the, the last car that came before, they were incredibly expensive. You know, they cost you know even back then, you know, one hundred and seventy thousand pounds. They weren't that powerful. Um, you know, and along comes Continental GT. It had five hundred and fifty-two horsepower, bang, bog standard standard car. You know, not a speed or anything else, um, which isn't an awful lot less than they get than, than they have today. And this was in two thousand and four, um, and it cost I think it was one hundred and four thousand pounds. I mean, it was it was not only far and away i mean far and away the fastest bentley that ever been produced in real terms it was also far and away the cheapest um and that was an absolutely mind-boggling proposition you know 12 cylinder six liter twin turbo four-wheel drive bentley for two-thirds of the money that you could buy any other bentley for i mean it was just extraordinary and it totally transformed the business um and you know that is the defining car in the history, in the modern history of Bentley. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've spent quite a lot of time in them. Um, they're they're brilliant cars. However, I think the the all new one that replaced it a couple of years ago 
for me, it's an altogether better car. It is. I think it's much sharper to drive. Yeah, that's and the other thing. Got- the, the, the original Conti GT, if if I whisper it, it wasn't that great a car. I mean, it was really it was a good car, beautifully engineered car. Ride wasn't great. Handling wasn't great. Engine didn't make a fun, wonderful noise. Um, it was quite a flawed car. Today's Continental GT, proper. Mm. It's yeah. exceptional, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it really is. And you'd have, you'd have yours with eight cylinders. Yeah, defo. Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Okay, you lose a tiny bit of performance, <laughs> but you know it's a bit lighter. It sounds so much better. Um, mm. It's it's cheaper, and it fills so quick. The V8 one, it really so romps yeah. along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Bentley is now a ten thousand unit a year company. Yeah, um, so significant. Half of those, roughly, sadly, are SUVs. The Bentayga. That's what people want, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose we should just round out this podcast by discussing Bentley's future. Um, what lies in wait? I mean, we know that they're going to have to go all electric yep. quite soon. They said that they've said that by 2030, um, they are going to be end-to-end carbon neutral. Pwah, that's impressive, um, isn't it? They want to be the world's what do they say? The world's most sustainable. Um, luxury car company that there is um yeah it's 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 really really interesting i mean i think they're brave committing to what they've done as early as they've done it um i think it's sad that you know um those wonderful thundering bentley engines um aren't going to be um doing their thing anymore but I, i don't suppose you can blame bentley for that um i do think that in theory at least um Electric is probably good powertrain for a Bentley. I think it'll suit Bentley a lot more than it does many other manufacturers because, um, you know, it's all about torque. It's all about refinement. Um, it's all about, you know, easy access to power. So I think that an electric Bentley could still be a Bentley and feel like a Bentley. Um, although, you know, I think they, I think the great gamble is that by... 2030 or whenever they start doing these things that um you know range and recharging just isn't an issue anymore because you know people are just you know people spending that kind of money on a bentley they're just not going to want to spend hours standing in some scuzzy service station they're just not going to want to they're going to want to get in their cars and go you know really that you know they want to be able to drive their cars from london to the alps with one stop taking more than no more than you know half an hour um, and they'll just want to blitz it. And that's what the Bentley will have to be able to do by then. Um, and, you know, good luck to them. I think, I think it's quite a challenge. Yeah, the technology's going to have to come some way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, good. Well, final thing I want to say is that, you know, even in this VW era, where, with platform sharing and all the rest of it, when you go to crew and look around the factory, you still see skilled craftspeople doing their thing, rows and rows of workers on sewing machines, very, very skilled. Um, the way they handle and treat their wood veneers, all that sort of stuff. There's, there's still people using their hands to build these cars beautifully. And even when they're powered by the most modern electric drivetrains, there'll still be people who have learned a craft over many years and who really care building these things in the same old way. That's encouraging, I think. It is. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think what's interesting, I think the challenge for Bentley at the moment is they've actually got a very narrow, in terms of price, range. You know, all their cars are kind of in the 150 to 200,000. Now that the Mulsanne, 
the wonderful, lovely Mulsanne, one of my favourite cars, um, has gone, not replaced. Um, you know, it's... It, I, I can't think of another luxury car manufacturer where the gap between its its flagship and entry-level model is, is is as narrow as at Bentley. And I think I think that's a really real challenge for them. I think they've got to find a way of broadening it um, and they'll probably do that at the, at the top end because frankly that's where the volume that's where the not where the volume is that's where the money is um, but it'll be interesting to see what they do because you know they are they are missing tricks there um, and I know that they know it and I'm sure they'll they'll, they'll, they'll they'll address it but to me that's kind of what I find most interesting about the more immediate future of that bet is how they um, find a way of you know, of, of of producing Bentleys for whatever it is, you know, 250, 350, 450, um, just so that they can, you know, because they don't want to sacrifice that territory to anywhere else. I mean, at the moment, you know, Rolls-Royce now, now that Lagonda isn't going to happen for a long time, now that Bentley doesn't have a Mulsanne anymore, I mean, Lagonda, Rolls-Royce is just sitting pretty. They've got that territory entirely to themselves. Um, and the longer that happens, I think the more difficult it's going to be for anyone to go and... Um, part of their tanks on Rolls-Royce's lawn again. So um, hopefully Bentley will do something about that. Yeah, and the Bentley brand stretches up to that price point very comfortably, doesn't it? It should do, um, absolutely. We've massively yeah. overrun. There we go. Well, I told you, Andrew, knew a thing or two about Bentley. Um, good, we'll leave that on there. Thank you all for listening. Um, just remember to go and download the podcast. Start your Sorry, go and download the Intercool app. app start app. your free trial. Listen to the podcast, download the app. Download the app, something like yeah. that. D- do those two things and you'll keep us very happy. And we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Thanks all. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 